critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. So welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by the fine folks from 11FS, your friendly digital transformation agency. We've been downloaded in more than 150 countries, and we were number one in the business category in iTunes this week. So thank you for listening. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my colleagues, David Breer. David, say hello. Hello. Chris Skinner. Hello there. And of course, Jason Bates. Hey, guys. And my goodness, we have a full house of Singapore-based experts, and what a show we've got on Singapore FinTech for you. First up, we have Anna Vanessa Hutanto, the CEO of the New Savvy Business Development Director at Terra Capital. Anna, hello. Good to have you with us. Hi. Hello. Spisa, the co-founder of the Singapore FinTech Consortium. Hi. We have uh, Joe Singing Cho, the CEO of Lattice 80. Joe, good to have you with us. Hi. We have Scott Bales, the Managing Director at Innovation Labs Asia. Hey, hey, Garen. Last but by no means least, Varun Mittal, the Associate Director of Asia Pacific FinTech at Ernst Young. So what a show we've got for you. We've seen that uh, a lot has been happening in the Singapore FinTech scene recently. The MAS has vowed to invest more than 225 million Singapore dollars or 158 million US dollars in FinTech by the end of 2020. Uh, and there's a lot of hope that this can cut out costs from back office systems and become truly transformational for the market and the region. But let's take a step back from that and set the stage. Maybe, Scott, let's set the stage in terms of what is FinTech tech and financial services seem like in Singapore? What's the financial infrastructure look like and, and what what is the what is the startup scene look like? Yeah, I think it's important to take a back step back even further. Is, you know, Singapore has been a financial hub even prior to being a, a fintech hub. So there was always a wealth of, of financial services, banking, you know, trading kind of talent here. Uh, and it has been for some time, particularly after you know a large shift to sort of 2007, 2008 away from Switzerland in the private banking and investment banking space to Singapore. And that kind of laid the, basically the capital foundations for a lot of the things we have today. Uh, in the last for five years, uh, we've seen more and more, I'd say financial services startups gravitate to Singapore for two core reasons. Firstly, it's a, it's ease of doing business. It's fantastic for the region. So if you want to build a payment, you know, a financial inclusion payments business in, in Indonesia or Malaysia, or you want to do something in the high-velocity programmatic trading space, Singapore is a was a fantastic place to just kind of do that, uh, and as that sort of started growing momentum, we've seen talent move from traditional financial services into kind of what we call the fintech scene today uh, to to grow that base. And um, I also like to believe that you know Next Bank, you know AKA Next Money, has you know since two thousand twelve has had a, a key role in kind of driving you know Singapore as as that catalyst. 
Oh, that's fantastic. I wonder if, um, Varun, there's anything you want to add for, as a, from a consulting perspective. You've got a pretty good uh, view on the market and uh, view as to you know, how it's been evolving over the last four or five years. Uh, what do you see as the, the keys to uh, success from uh, a Singapore perspective? And how does this compare with other economies you might have seen in the Asia region and also um, some of the global economies? Is, uh, what's unique and what's different about Singapore? See, Singapore uh, is very unique in, the, in that perspective that the domestic market is very small. It's just 5 million people. So if you are a B2C company, there is a limit to the scale you can achieve out of this. But it's a huge economy in the fintech space for B2B because it's the regional headquarter of most of the financial institutions. In some scenarios, even the APAC headquarter of financial institutions. So Singapore on its own has some value, but as a gate to ASEAN has much, much more value. So when we look at Singapore's fintech landscape, it needs to be looked from the perspective of what Singapore becomes a test bed and pilot for things, which can then be expanded across ASEAN. And uh, that's where Singapore and MAS have taken a leadership in terms of uh, last week, last month, for example, all the 10 regulators in ASEAN, like all the countries, Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, all the regulators and banking associations collected in Bangkok for two days, where they spent full two days discussing going through the case studies, challenges of four topics, API banking, cloud, security, and digital ID and KYC, which are all like the bedrock of anything you want to build on the fintech landscape, irrespective of asset class. And it was led by ABS and uh, working with the other stakeholders in. So Singapore fintech is, there is a large B2B opportunity. There is a test bed for a lot of interesting B2C use cases. And then third is the gateway to ASEAN. That's where the role of Singapore comes in uh, with respect to what FinTech can do. And a small data point. So if you look at the top four fundraising done by FinTech in Singapore's history, they're all B2B companies. There is no B2C FinTech in the top four fundraisings done ever in the history of Singapore in the FinTech sector. So that shows you a level of the opportunity for B2B versus B2C from Singapore fintechs landscape. Sharon, that's, that's very interesting because there was a quote from the um, the Singapore regulator MAS saying that uh, the focus is largely being on uh, enablers rather than disruptors. And I don't know if um, is what we're seeing in Singapore enablement of the existing economy through fintech or, or is there a scope for disruption and disrupting incumbent financial services providers? Um, yeah, no, I, I think to to, uh, to complement what Varun mentioned uh, on, on the enablement, um, uh, fully subscribe to the fact that we see a lot of B2B uh, opportunities. And uh, if you look, for example, the last 24 months, uh, we've seen um, almost on a monthly basis new corporate uh, innovation uh, centers being launched. So our latest count is between 25 to 30 now financial institutions having put in, uh, have put uh, dedicated resources here on the ground, which has been instrumental to drive the ecosystem. And on the flip side, I think if you look at MES, and perhaps just to share a few uh, data points on what MES has done since they set up their group on the 1st of August 2015, by the latest count, we've, we've, uh, we've seen 24 initiatives that any MES have launched. 
And that really varies from a fintech festival to four or five uh, consultation papers and really uh, driving across the board uh, a number of initiatives to uh, do to further the ecosystem and then indeed particularly around the establishment and, and, and furthering partnerships between the incumbents and, and early stage companies and, uh, and indeed building further cross-border bridges. So, um, so we think that the MES has played an uh, instrumental role but also that the large corporates really here have um, have now um, the, the awareness has 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 grown a lot among the large players, and they now have been following through with uh, with exploring concurrently just to uh, to get involved in this early stage scene. So uh, so overall, that's I think very encouraging. I, I think I'd like to add there that so one of the frustrations I've seen in the market is yes, MIS has been very progressive and very enabling. But the non-bank, the MBFI regulation that exists in Malaysia, Indonesia, and so forth, which is a key catalyst for things like um, telcos to go into mobile money, and I mean, it's just, it's a regulation that Move-in uses in the United States today, uh, does not exist here. So it, uh, a lot of the fintech here can't. The reason for there is no bit, not uh, very few B two C stuff here, is because you cannot issue your own customer products here as a fintech today, direct to consumers you'll need to go through the channels of a bank or through an advisory framework to actually do that. Yeah, I think that's a key point, Scott, and that um, scalability is a challenge in the region and that you can't scale across the region because each country has its own regulations and bylaws. Um, and equally, what I think is interesting right now is the balance between Singapore and Hong Kong in that Hong Kong is a gateway to Chinese fintech, which obviously is hugely significant, particularly in the last 18 months. And maybe that's going to be more of a challenge longer term for Singapore in terms of how to sustain growth when you don't have scalability in the region. Maybe, Varen, can you make a comment on that challenge of how to balance Singapore's fintech interests against Hong Kong's? See, the way I look at it is Singapore and Hong Kong are not competitors per se. There is uh, a lot of, it's, it's, it makes very good clickbait articles and a lot of interesting LinkedIn posts to get a lot of comments on them. But if you look at structurally, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong have very different roles uh, to play. Hong Kong being within the proximity to China uh, for all the legal, cultural, economic systems, it's much more closer to that. And uh, some very difference. They have three regulators in Hong Kong. So imagine if you're a uh, fintech firm which is trying to offer a few financial services, you'll have to go to three regulators. There are three different sandboxes, three different license offices. Singapore has one office which takes care of all of them. Again, not going to merits, demerits of anything, but there, that's, there are so many differences per se. Uh, from that perspective, Hong Kong is not part of a trading block per se. I mean, not counting in China in because China, the law in everything in China would be very different. Singapore is part of a ASEAN block and it gives a whole window to ASEAN. And that is the key value and difference. So, which is where it's not probably fair to compare them. Each of them have their own strengths and each of them is leveraging their own strengths. So from where we see Singapore's core strength is we have uh, a political system which is very uh, well defined. We have a lot of predictability per se from the business perspective. There is the policies are very business friendly. Not that they're unfriendly in Hong Kong, but they're very business friendly to set up funds. There, there are a lot of government supports, grants available for funds to set up. 
and there is proactive support to engage in outside market access so uh, singapore's vision for a smart financial center is enabling access to capital access to talent and access to uh, market so these are the three axes we look at so even when we look at uh, from what is the need of the ecosystem Singapore is always focused on enabling these three pieces. MAS has signed MOUs with uh, eight different financial hubs globally, where to enable cross-border access. And like even two weeks from now, two or three weeks from now, there is Shanghai FinTech Forum in Singapore. So Singapore is very globally outwards, having those relationships hubs, and every focus is that this market is not enough. We have to enable market access. How do we get that done? So Singapore has their own focus, their own strength areas, and it is working towards there. Hong Kong has their own ob- objectives and priorities. They're working towards there. There is enough for both of the regions to grow. They don't need to fight and make a lot of uh, those online, I would say, artificially sparked online debates per se. Yes, I'm interested uh, in hearing. You know, after hearing you speak and having visited uh, Singapore a few times, but a long time ago, in in the culture of innovation and fintech. Because if I look where where it's been truly successful in the world, if you're looking at the uh, West Coast or in London, um, there's a very sort of libertarian, uh, slightly rule-breaking, pushing boundaries culture. And while MAS is obviously doing some really amazing things structurally, both in terms of regulation, sandbox, making it tax um, advantageous to set up businesses there, you know, I also sort of know from a long time ago, and maybe things have changed, that Singapore was very authoritarian. You know, there was the the laws against chewing gum and corporal punishment and very much a sort of an authoritarian state. Is that still true? And how do you see the, the culture of innovation and change uh, flourishing within that kind of environment? I think there's two parts to this. One, one thing is, I mean, that, that's still the core of Singapore. But the one, so we talk about MAS a lot in terms of enabling fintech innovation. But I would actually, I, I would call probably more like this point to EDB. So the Economic De- Development Board of, of Singapore is actually one of the largest investors in Singapore Inc. And so going back to the idea of attract, you know, access to capital, access to talent, access to market, EDB has played a multi-decade relationship in creating Singapore's prosperity, where they're very good at the at understanding the financial return of okay, if I give you know multinational company X you know a a tax and cash incentive to move their regional headquarters to Singapore, um, that will create economics you know economic activity in the region. It'll create jobs. It'll create you know they have a very good model in terms of actually understanding that into its impact to the country. I just see that the recent ones, particularly around, I wouldn't say we've broken any rules, but a lot of stuff we've been doing recently has just been the advancement of the exact, that exact same core thesis. Is we're just saying, okay, look, if, we, if Singapore is to remain a powerhouse within the financial services um, hubs of the world, they have to invest in a way that you know perpetuates that 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 role. And so the models that EDB is behind MAS is two hundred and twenty million dollars. You know, they've invested in MetLife's innovation lab here. They've invested in OCBC's innovation labs here as capital injections in the same way they've done it from past kind of 
you know, incentive programs. I think that's amazing and just shows the the focus and the drive in in being that that powerhouse. I guess I'm still interested in that cultural question. You know, if in a in a country that does still have corporal punishment and some very you know, what what the West would see as draconian rules, what, does that have an impact on the kind of uh, startup culture uh, that you'd be looking for? So I think that previously in Singapore, people will not be open to be uh, joining a startup, but the t- attitudes have been changing. And I think the government is promoting entrepreneurship. If you look at the grants and the support that they have given startups and the culture, I think um, they are trying to build an ecosystem here. One of MAS vision is to build a smart financial center. So I think in terms of culture, a lot of the younger people do want to join a startup. They do want to be an entrepreneurs. Whereas previously, when I first graduated, I think most people want to join a bank. Interesting. And being, being in a startup is definitely something that we can we can talk about more. Um, but it, I think there is something that, to what Jason says about um, kind of making sure that you've got that support, not just from a regulator and a fund standpoint, but uh, talk to me about the talent ecosystem a little bit, because there's there's that third piece to it. I mean, Gerben, I don't know how, how you feel yeah. about this, but uh, yeah. there's, there's certainly uh, you know, always that talent part of the equation. And yeah. there's, there's probably only so many people in Singapore, but yet Asia Pacific is, is absolutely massive. How, how is Singapore from a, from a talent perspective? Yeah. I know there's definitely a lot of financial services there. Back in 2012 or so, I think the... the Predominantly, the tech startups, if you look at founders and the guys driving, was predominantly still foreigners. And of course, at that time, even from a government perspective, it was quite restrictive in visas or this entrepreneur uh, visa wasn't really working. Um, And I think at that time, also from uh, the local population, especially in fintech, there were not that many opportunities. And I think also the prestige and the job safety with the financial services was different than it is now. And I think what we've seen over this last five years, of course, that the fintech opportunities have grown. Um, I think Singapore as a financial center has been fairly insulated with uh, the Asian crisis back in uh, 98 or the 2008 um, global crisis. So the financial professionals in Singapore didn't have the challenges that we've seen in New York or London uh, with blood on the street. Uh, but now Singapore's financial sector is, uh, you know, is is not moving that well, and we see some redundancies. We definitely see retrenchment of the banks, and I think the job security in fin- in the traditional financial services is dropping significantly. And on the other hand, uh, the fin- fintech ecosystem is picking up. So we see a lot of financial professionals who are now keen to see how they can make the jump, and that's both from uh, from locals as well as foreigners. Um, and I think also from the government, we, we do see some interesting signals that they do acknowledge, first of all, that the, the, the culture around uh, in, within the educational bodies and the curriculums have to be more around uh, technopreneurship and that people need to be the future skill programs that are also here now in place. People realize that if you want to be entrepreneurial, you you can't be too risk uh, risk averse. You cannot be too conservative, and and that requires a different mindset. So I think the government is aware of it, and they have taken you know, steps towards addressing that. Um, but again, if I look at the the talent pool in Singapore of the last five years, has has grown tremendously, but it's still very challenging, and it's probably the biggest pain point for many of the startups. But again, the last 12 months knows what MES has done now that with foreign startups that they, 
that the paid up capital $50,000 goes away. You, you can get a visa not for one year, but for two years. So hopefully to fuel the ecosystem from a top down by having more foreign companies in, bringing new fresh blood into the ecosystem. And then uh, that will also uh, probably uh, add to the job creation. And in the end, that should be, uh, you know, that's a key KPI for the government and, and for many people in our ecosystem to see the proportion of people in financial services working in the, on the innovation or the startup scene vis-a-vis the, the incumbents uh, to, to, to shift. And, and that's definitely moving in, in the right direction. I think there's a key thing uh, in this conversation, which we've kind of touched on, but it's a critical point. I'm going to show my age here. And I first went to Singapore in 1987, and there were about two and a half million people living there then. There's now almost six million. So in 30 years, it's more than double population. It's a managed economy. And as a managed economy, it steered itself through government-focused programs critically to be the hub for Southeast Asia. And that's therefore not just building a hub based on capital injection and government control, but equally bringing in the right talent pools and bringing in the right people. And a good example of the managed economy right now is that the last time I was there was in January. And my friend was telling me about how on Sentosa Island, there's the main dockside container port that's going to move to the other side of Singapore over the next five years. And all of that area will become uh, living accommodation and you know, apartments for bringing in more people and more talent to the country so maybe joe as we haven't heard from you yet um you know maybe you can make some comment on the f- culture and feeling in singapore and particularly i know when i look at hong kong and singapore as t- the two main financial cities singapore to me is much more of a family oriented country and city would you agree we looked at different cities including singapore hong kong and i'm a korean so we compared to korea to many places to decide where to set up a fintech hub let us say that we, after meeting many um, government agencies and regulators and uh, compared uh, culture, we decided to set this up in Singapore because we so good. Given that it is being a financial hub and um, platform and a gateway to Southeast Asia and most of places, we we thought timing was right because I'm here last uh, for last ten years. But this last year, we could see clear changes in uh, from the government drive to uh, start to see changes in private sectors as well. So it was quite uh, interesting to see even this managed economy and how regulators are changing their attitude by inviting more people and engaging system was pretty interesting. So we, I was almost convinced to set up fintech hub in Seoul, to be honest. And Hong Kong was definitely much bigger market. Traditionally, they have bigger uh, liquidity and easy access to China. But after uh, spending a couple of months to compare two cities, each one has different roles and we end up deciding Singapore to uh, be a hub. I think we made a pretty right decision. And definitely, if you're looking at Southeast Asia and India and other markets, I think Singapore is the only choice and number one choice still. So we still see pretty good potential and I'm excited to see more things happening. Yeah, thanks. And in terms of looking at um, 
you know, the standout companies that are startups in fintech in Singapore, there probably are quite a few that uh, people outside the region may not have heard of. I mean, certainly when you look at wealth tech, for example, companies like Core Levels and Quantifeed and Adia, My Hero, there's a lot of um, areas of specialization coming out of Singapore. What would be, um, Varen, Scott, for you guys, maybe Varen first, what would be the um, key standouts for you in the region? See, for me personally, the key standouts would be the companies which have already, I mean, of course, uh, with due respect to call levels and quantity feed, they are still growing. I mean, there's this at an early stage. For me, I would like to take example to companies like MDAC. MDAC has raised $115 million in CDC, $19 million paid up capital. Born, bred Singapore company focusing on Forex exchange. I would say, uh, for me, the like the rock stars would be a match move, which raised $30 million, is available in 30, 13 markets, born, built from scratch in Singapore. For me, rock star would be CXA, uh, a lady who spends all her life in Mercer uh, and builds an employee benefits company, hardcore insurtech startup, raises $25 million from Eduardo Sovereign at 100 mil valuation. For me, those are like my sources of inspiration and those are the people... Uh, entrepreneurs look up to in Singapore community, for sure. There is a lot which uh, uh, the other wealth man upcoming wealth management companies. So we have a few robo B2B robo-advisor solutions. As of now, we don't have a single B2C robo-advisor. Uh, hopefully, we will have we have three companies working on those. But from where I see, as of now, we have not had a huge wealth management success the B2B guys, I respect the B2B uh, uh, robo-advisors on their place, like the Bamboo, the V-Invest of the world, uh, which are there in Singapore. But we still need to have a global proven leader yet. We, we're going there. We're, almost, we're, we're going fast towards there. I do not expect like a global B2C giant too soon because, again, Singapore market will be too strong. Acquiring customers in other markets will be very different. Scaling a B2B product in multiple markets is much easier than B2C product. So that that's the key aspect of like who are the inspirations and heroes which will come. Some interesting inspirations there, Varun. And I think uh, I'm going to ask Scott to just tell us a little bit about what, what are the key themes then. So there's there's probably more than those those heroes. What are the if we step out a little bit and look at you know is it peer to peer payments? Is it challenger banks? Is it lending? Where, where are the big themes? I know Varun earlier on mentioned that uh, it's more in the B two B space, but can you drill down on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely not. There's almost no P to P here. There is very little in the in the lending space and so forth because they are predominantly B2C plays. It may, it may agree with pretty much every company that Varen's listed off is that most of them are what we call enablers as, as, as we go back to the MIS's quote, is most of those come from uh, an industry insider who has got to some moment in life either through has a problem they want to solve or they've been pushed out of a bank uh, have decided to take on a, you know an entrepreneurial uh, venture on a known problem. I'm using their ex expertise and, and, and the likes. I mean, everything from the hedge funds here are identical, particularly around programmatic trading, some of the stuff around early sentiment trading as well here. I mean, they're all ex-industry ex people that have, like say, I've, I've, got a, I've got a problem I already know and I'm going to take it to, to an entrepreneurial venture. Um, most of the, the real successes here are, are B2B, um, B2B enablers, I would say. 
um, with, with a degree of insight. I mean, look at even look at the profile of where people have gravitated. Is that, I mean, even the Dragon Wealth guys all gravitated to their former bank employer. You know, it's the same for the guys that are ex-SCB or ex-Deutsche you know, or ex-Credit Suisse. They tend to use their connections and so forth in terms of solving a problem for an, for an incumbent. So I think that's really interesting because from a point of view of, uh, of London, for instance, there is this, this group of startups or group of fintech that is looking at that enabling side. But also there are a new startups of fintechs that are very much going B2C and therefore challenging the incumbents to, to up their game by moving them away from those commodity financial products they know so well into more intelligent digital services. I guess the question for, for Joe is without that level of challenge, without trying to push the bar forward and with a, a lot of Singapore fintech being about enabling, do you see the B2C world improving or, or will it only just get incrementally better? Uh, I think it's definitely improving. So we, I mean, technology has been always there, but somehow the, the customer adoption and adoption into new tech and fintech services were pretty low. So I think ATM is one of the classic examples for Singapore to show how bank services are offered to the customers. You have bank A, B, and C. I can't really draw money from bank B, ATM from my bank C account. And they, Singapore is quite interesting market because they have all the infrastructure ready. They have automated payment system for car park and highways, and everyone is using the their visa waiver kind of contactless tap tapping card to use on subways and other buses. But those are not really consolidated. So if anyone is coming to consolidate this either banks or credit card companies and other service companies could be quite interesting. And it wasn't really happening, but I, I think recent changes is happening from uh, like Uber to Grab kind of companies making people get used to pay uh, through their mobile. So the adoption is getting better and better. And so this is indirectly encouraging people to use more uh, to make mobile payment and uh, making online payments to use e-commerce services as well. Yeah. I also want to bring this back. This is a global theme that I've written about several times, is that I still believe today that the future of like B2C, consumer financial services, is invisible. Um, and so you see like the companies that are making the most progress in the B2C space are not banks and so forth. They're the stripes or the brain trees of the world that are just saying, okay, how do I take an existing customer journey and make the financial traction, financial transaction invisible, invisible, which is exactly what Grab and Uber do, or or, or Airbnb. It's you know also all of a sudden that financial transaction has gone away. If you look at Alibaba uh, as well, I mean Alibaba is, has one of the biggest loan books in the planet just by doing supply chain finance within their marketplace. So that that's a trend we're almost seeing you know, the, the B two C side almost disappearing, um, and and that's also why we're seeing a lot of you know pushed you know not do more B2C because we've seen B2C startups here in Singapore multiple times, but they just really lack the traction. You've got multiple jurisdictions to deal with, multiple KYC frameworks and multiple regulators. You know, it's it's a tough play where if you can go to the kind of model that a Braintree or Stripe operates today, you know, your, your, path, to, your path to scale is through enabling another partner, it's a, enabling an Uber. I, I think also to that point, if, if you compare Southeast Asia and in, in that respect, even including Singapore, 
from a distribution perspective, either from uh, from a B two C, either on the bank, retail banking or the insurance side. You know, Southeast Asia is 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 behind for more than a decade. If you look at it, even from from the start of any customer journey with comparison and aggregation side or price comparison side, that the distribution here has been very traditional, very physical with with agencies for a long time and only the last two or three years you see now uh, transparency and, and, and customer and, and whereby their digital platform for consumers to understand the, the financial offerings. So I think that that is a one, one, one uh, observation. Secondly, I think where you look on the B2C side, there's tremendous amount of cross-border uh, challenge uh, besides the, the domestic challenges as, as Joseph referenced. There are tremendous pain points uh, on the cross-border side that, that some startups now here also try to address. If you talk around remittance, um, as an example, uh, here of the five, uh, five million people, there, there's a million migrants and domestic helpers. So these capital flows are all going through uh, still Western Union and whatnot. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's ex- uh, outrageously expensive and, and cumbersome. So we see we see solutions coming in um, around those pain points as well. Um, so I think, um, and then separately, if you look at Southeast Asia from a B two perspective as well, uh, the you know the infrastructure in Indonesia or Malaysia around e commerce and uh, mobile payment and and digital payments is you know, the, the the receptiveness from the consumer, especially from the millennials, is really taking up. But they, they do want to have more um, more elegant and 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 real time payment solutions. So um, so I, in that respect, the the surrounding markets are uh, you know are very uh, appealing and attractive and and still very virgin. So I guess building on both of those points, if we're talking about invisible payments, we're talking about integrating and using APIs to to play parts in larger end to end journeys, which which takes banking into the background rather than having it be a, a primary place that you go. Where does Singapore sit in that open banking world and the, the use of APIs and, I guess, incumbents and their desire to get into that world? So um, this is where I'm actually quite excited because if you look at the work that MAS did last year, particularly around um, at an infrastructure level, let, let's talk public cloud for a second, um, you know, for MAS to go on stage and publicly say they have they have no objections to the use of public cloud technology, forget cloud for a second. It means we can do one one thing that we haven't been done to do for a long time. We can ask bigger questions of data sets that we've ever been asked before. You know, it, it's the simple question we looked at when we looked at the, the, the auth models of that we built in in, in, in moving in the early days is to approve a Mastercard transaction. It takes 170 field 174 fields of data. That includes GDP data, merchant data, GPS data. But over 160 of those get discarded at the completion of the transaction. And it's not because I don't think it adds value. It's because it's going because IBM is going to bill us a ton more money for storage and compute power based on CPUs and storage, blah, blah, blah. So if we start looking at like what, what public cloud could do is all of a sudden we can keep those 172 fields and create a massive data lake somewhere. Like if, I would love to run a data lake underneath Nets of Singapore. The insights that that would enable around economic activity, uh, infrastructure optimization, tourism, like a whole ton of things becomes fantastically possible. And that's only possible because the MIS has supported things like public, you know, public cloud. But I, I almost hear uh, some conflicting views there in that, on one hand, sharing ATMs 
might is a problem between a number of banks yet actually the way to go forward would be to create uh, to come together and to create great infrastructure either on the cloud either on the agreeing what the api should be you know how they they break out how do you see that playing I can say it's very similar to how you see it in in other spaces. You know, why is Uber and Airbnb so successful? Because it was a superior experience for the end consumer. Is if the banks don't do it, the consumer owns their own data. They can opt their own data in if they want. Essentially, that's what we you know where the key. Like you look at what Mint, what Mint does in North America, the consumer opts to share their data with a service provider. Uh, you look at things like some of the things in in Malaysia as well. Eventually, the consumer can choose that if I give my data over. And get a get a superior value back. That's a big catalyst, and that's that's will probably be a fear for most banks. Is that one of the challenges is here is domestically almost every bank here has tried to do some kind of let's ingest all your transactions and give you an idea on your financial health and how you're spending money and so forth to help your savings or something. But the financial services here at the consumer level is so fragmented because of the point of sale incentives on credit cards. Everyone carries twenty five credit cards. So no bank here has more than a 20, 25% share of your wallet. So the actual completeness of the data to derive those insights is actually, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't show much. So there's got to be someone who's actually going to say, okay, is a consumer movement to share their data into, an, into a lake or someone actually does that from a, from a, from a governing or instructional perspective. What came up there was there are, there are some challenges that are unique to Singapore. You know, the carrying twenty five credit cards or, and the the way that the infrastructure sharing works. The fact that fintech is very much enabling the current banks rather than disrupting it from a B two C side. Uh, are they the main themes, or are there more about fintech in Singapore? What's the cheat sheet if I was going to come and and found something in Singapore? If you're an early stage company looking into uh, setting up shop in Singapore. I think a lot is around the Private Data Protection Act. Of course, if you look what MES recently announced regarding this KYC utility portal with a couple of local banks, see how they can use governmental data to, to share that with, uh, with local banks for KYC and onboarding, which is quite encouraging. But on the flip side, if you now still have to... Um, do a KYC check, um, which I don't as an as an anecdotally this this uh, this Monday with TransferWise for for both personal and for business. I still have to go over to their to their office and physically present my uh, my identity. So you know, so on one hand it's still very arcade. On the other hand, they are really pushing uh, forward quite hard. Also with the API, if you talk about what MES uh, um, published uh, with with a number of private sectors, is this Open API Playbook, which is a document which is uh, quite worthwhile uh, uh, flipping through because it's over 400 pages. But at least it, it demonstrates the ambition or the direction it wants to take. But, uh, but there are some on the basic level, if you look at KYC or even AML and, and identity, there's, uh, there's in Singapore some, some hurdles that first need to be overcome before you can actually implement more um, innovative solutions here. And hopefully also in the, in the foreseeable future being addressed and at least the, uh, the acknowledgement, I think, from the government and MES is there to uh, look at it very seriously. I was just uh, reflecting on... Um 
the conferences that take place in Singapore. I've been to the SunTech Centre many times and I know that FinTech Festival by MAS was set up last year and then you've got Money 2020 coming in spring. Um, do you think there's room for both the FinTech Festival and Money 2020 and what other exhibitions or networking events take place in Singapore? There's the next money events, for example, that Rob Finley and guys organise. So how do, how do you see all the different networking events in Singapore? Let me play devil's advocate here. Is I mean, if you want to go to a fintech event in Singapore, you can probably go to one every night. The the, the challenge I have with it, a lot of it is just um, a transition from what's always existed in the banking sector. There is a ton of events basically to self gratify themselves and give themselves a bunch of awards and and you know puff their chests up. We still have, I would say, over half the events here are exactly that: a bunch of people getting giving themselves awards for no particular reason. At some point in time, we've got to find a way to get to to differentiate from those. Um, but that being said, as Singapore is a is going to give a, a gravitate a gravitas for uh, the right conversations. I mean, the reason it, it, Next Bank started here is because you know, Singapore is the hub for ASEAN. You know, if you want to do financial services work in Indonesia, Singapore is the place to start because most of the safe beds for in the Indonesian market access are here in Singapore. If you want to do business in Malaysia, in Vietnam, all of their safe beds are here in terms of regional headquarters perspective. So it's still going to be that sort of you know, uh, gravitational point to getting people to come here. The challenge is going to be on, on like, like typically, it's going to be on the curation side. I mean, who can, cre- who can curate real, deep, meaningful, progressive discussions? I, I like to poke tongues, but you know, the, the, the generic events companies tend to just have very shallow topics, but there is, you know, some really cool stuff. And like the, even the FinTech Association or some of the special associations here that do, you know, small interest groups and having some fantastic discussions. I think to, to complement to that and also addressing the question of um, the FinTech Festival that took place last uh, November, uh, organized by uh, MES and uh, ABS, uh, which in the end had over 12,000 people, which was much larger than, I guess, everybody uh, anticipated. I think, uh, if nothing else, it, it really put Singapore globally on the map. So the whole awareness and for positioning, it was very good. Um, and I think they're doubling down on it. So no doubt it will be larger and, and more broad, but hopefully also more in-depth. I think there's definitely room for money 2020. I think what they've done last year uh, in Europe, in Copenhagen, those four days was, was very instrumental in putting the fintech ecosystem in Europe really together in a very meaningful way for the first time. Um, and I think Money 2020 is a platform and the whole cross-border piece that they do very well. Uh, so I think a lot of people here uh, in Singapore are very excited about them coming uh, next year. I got the impression that FinTech Festival is maybe a little bit more bank and corporate, a lot of suits, and Money 2020 is more for startups and investors and uh, you know the, the, the new ecosystem. Um, I'll be down at FinTech Festival this year, so I, maybe Varan, give me a summary of what came out of it uh, for you. I would probably not agree with that, that the FinTech Festival was a lot of uh, suits and boots and Money 2020 is more startup. Uh, to the point that there was a specific category of tickets for startups, which was much lower than all other conference tickets and all other event tickets, including the ones in Hong Kong or other markets. And students in all the educational institutions were enabled free access to be part of it. And there were no dress codes for that per se. 
So uh, there was a large amount of student and startup community also in the fintech festival. So from that perspective, uh, again, and we haven't had Amani 2020, so it's too early to say what would be the audience mix in Amani 2020 event. Uh, but for me personally, what was really valuable was Singapore becoming the bridge between India and China. So there is a 1.2 billion market at one side and 1.3 billion market at another side, and which is connected by a 600 million bridge. And Singapore has become Singapore becomes the entry point between the three. So it's 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 in the inter, in the intersection of all, and a beautiful statistics to look at. I, I'm I'm a very hardcore numbers person. Singapore's uh, population uh, percentage by by ethnicity, seventy percent Chinese, about fourteen uh, percent uh, Malay who speak Bahasa, which is the language for uh, uh, Malaysia and almost similar language in Indonesia. And the last 10% is Indian. That's the ethnic mix of Singapore. So that sits, it, it is the perfect connecting dot for the three ecosystems of uh, Indian subcontinent, GCR, and ASEAN. And uh, coming together of all these three was beautiful. And 2018 would be even incredible for an additional reason. ASEAN, is a, as a regional bloc, has an annual uh, presidentship. Uh, so last year was Philippine was the head of all 10 countries and President Obama visited Manila for the inaugural event. 2018, Singapore is the president of ASEAN Council and all the global leaders will be coming to Singapore that. So based on FinTech being the priority for the government and Deputy Prime Minister himself coming at most of the events and Singapore becoming the ASEAN Council president next year. So we are looking at uh, a great runway to a successful year ahead and uh, we look forward to welcome all of you to the fintech festival and money 2020 both in singapore that's great um, and what a great summary to uh, to close on and i guess that's it for this week thanks for listening if you like what you've heard please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on itunes helps people to discover us and find out more about uh, what's happening in places like singapore so thanks again talk to you next week